Once possessing the highest GDP per capita in the world by the end of the 19th century, with its capital city, Buenos Aires, being called the Paris of South America, Argentina has since fallen to a country that, while prosperous, remains prone to financial crises and political turmoil. In dealing with this, Juan and Eva Perón, political and spiritual leaders for the 10 years following World War II, embodied the populist approach, then emphasized the government for the working class, leaving a legacy that to this day has a large number of Argentinian politicians calling themselves Peronist. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to understand. Hola, and welcome to this week's installment of the Myth of the 20th Century Internet Podcast. Uh, I'm Nick, and I'm here with Adam. It's the two of us today. How are you doing, Adam? I'm doing all right. Yeah? Just all right. Bueno, bueno. Uh, So, I watched a movie... In fact, I've been watching. I watched several movies lately. It's been storming where I live, and the advent of cozy season is upon us. So, I've uh, I've had the pleasure of watching a few things that were all right, and um, uh, some things that weren't so all right. I will give a brief shout out to a very bizarre Russian series I watched recently called "To the Lake." I think in Russian it's uh, called "Pandemic." But it's an interesting series. It has a lot of uh, sort of Chernobyl and stalker vibes to it. And it's also uh, eerily uh, prescient, I guess you'd say, because the series actually came out. I know that, you know, zombie stuff and pandemics are a dime a dozen um, world over, but. It came out before the recent plague, and it's basically just a its a rather short series detailing some families, uh, some Muscovite families, uh, fleeing to the country during a plague and various uh, responses, etc. You know, it's, I, can, I can reasonably recommend it. I think that a lot of listeners would, would like it for the most part. Some of it gets pretty weird. Uh, some in a good way. Some maybe not so much. Where do you find this? Like, uh, it's porn? actually Netflix produced, which really leads me to some. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I know that the as to what's exactly going on here. The novel was written or web series. I'm not sure exactly what the written material was that the series was based off of, but it was written by a woman. And the fact that Netflix is uh, producing it leads me to suspect that maybe there's some element of regime propaganda here that I'm not really picking up on. Well, The uh, Walking Dead was at 
season probably three um and then it kept getting worse pretty overt it was not even subtle i mean they had every lgbtq representative uh interracial you know whatnot everything was was on display and um you can sort of track that arc in a lot of netflix series where the the first season is typically something that's appealing to a broader audience, frankly. Uh, and then they start uh, making it woke when the audience is large enough. Or I don't know how they do that you know, math, but uh, that's the pattern I've noticed. Well, I suppose it's important that you know, during the, the end times that you have your priorities in order and you know just which BIPOC gets to eat first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's my brief shout out to the Russian series. It's it's all right. Uh, I I think it's it's an okay recommend. Uh, parts of it are really good, but it's it's kind of spotty. So I watched something else, and that brings us to the subject of today's program. I watched a musical. Okay, so that's you know you you'd stop me right here, of course, because as we all know. Uh, musicals are for fags and women. Uh, they are, you know, across the board, uh, unwatchable pieces of trash. Uh, I, in fact, as far as it goes, on my list of things that I really dislike the most, you know, uh, uh, speed limits, the post office, libtards, musicals are, are right up there. So why would I watch this musical? Uh, well, I suppose you could say it's because I had nothing better to do with my time, but I thought that it might hold something interesting for our program uh, because the musical that I watched was uh, Evita. Have you seen this, Adam? No, I I made a valiant effort, and I, I mentioned this to you before we started, but I got about two minutes in. Um, that was I mean, I didn't know it was a musical, first of all, and so I was like, all right, Antonio Banderas is good, I guess. I don't like Madonna, but uh, I knew that much. Um, and then he started singing, and I'm like, what the hell am I watching? So, no, I turned it off. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that I was interested in it was that Oliver Stone had a hand in writing the screenplay. Hmm. And Oliver Stone typically has... Uh, there's always little nuggets in Oliver Stone movies that are that are worth talking about. I think that I can't remember if it was on a recent program or we were just chatting after the program. We were talking about his interviews with Vladimir Putin. Yeah. Was that? No, we were talking afterwards. Oh, okay. Yeah, w- well, w- which I would recommend. I th- I think he did a, a bang up job with uh, Putin. There's there's one scene in particular that I liked where Putin and him are talking, and Putin is driving the car, and he's like just everything about that just says everything I like about Putin. He just does things and takes charge and man of action. Um, it's my understanding that American presidents are not allowed to drive ever. Probably president. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm so used to seeing that politicians being escorted everywhere with, uh, bazillion handlers and you got to respect a guy who's probably had, uh, a multitude of assassination attempts, just jump in a car like that. Yeah. I, um, so as being the only one who has seen this film, um, I'll do my best 
to summarize it for the listener. Um, so it's a musical. Okay. Any questions? <laughs> What's it about? <laughs> All right. Well, so the way it works is it's entirely about Eva Peron. Um, it, the events that were taking place in the country uh, and the life and thought of her husband are not at all the subject of this musical. And it was a musical prior to being a musical put to film. Uh, I believe it was written by a Brit. Uh, so you have that. But we are shown sort of these pivotal years in the life of Eva Peron through the perspective of Antonio Banderas, who functions sort of as the uh, the narrator, the Virgil figure, I guess. But he's supposed to be, I think, the working class on some level, like this, a stand-in for the working class of Argentina, which is interesting because throughout the film, you never see him doing any working. Uh, he's mostly sitting around in cafes. So... I uh, I detest that form of storytelling to begin with, at least in the where you have involved in the in the film in the in the moving picture, you have someone who is themselves not a participant. I, I don't care for that to begin with, musical or not. Uh, but you have Jonathan Price playing uh, Juan Perón. Now there is one thing about this that I thought was very interesting, and it's something that uh, you know only the astute observer would notice. Namely, that uh, Jonathan Price is six feet tall. Adam, do you know how tall Juan Perón was? Oh, um, I'm going to guess he was shorter. You would be incorrect. Mm. Juan Perón was six feet tall. He's exactly right. Yes. Wow, that's so, interesting. Kind of a trick question. You know, but looking for like positive it. things to say about the film, I will point out that they got Juan Perón's height correct, which is very important because. As did, I will did be you look this up first of all, <laughs> or do you just notice they're like correctly proportioned or something? I I knew as a matter of fact that Juan Perón was six feet tall. Huh. What I did not know was that Jonathan Price was six feet tall. I see. So yes, I I did look up whether Jonathan Price was at least six feet tall. I see. Uh, and he's precisely six feet tall. Hmm. Cool. Now does he look also like Perón? You have does he look? No, not really. Perón was, ah. Jonathan Price is not an especially fit man. Uh, Juan Perón in his prime very much was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was, he was uh, like was, a boxer and stuff. Yeah, he was, he was a military man through and through and had a very Spartan lifestyle. And uh, Jonathan Price, I'm not sure exactly why he was cast to play this role. I think because he's, his, probably he was known for playing diminutive characters, uh, most famously probably in Brazil. And that's sort of the overarching theme is that his his role in, in these events and his presence is is diminutive. He's he's pushed aside to the extent which he's portrayed as anything at all. He's portrayed as an opportunist. Um, you know that his wife, his second wife, rather, we can get into that. We can talk a little bit about about Perone and his, his second wife, Eva. But she was in many ways uh, she was a largely popular figure. I mean, very much so. There's, there's no doubt about that. And she was the face of a lot of various social aid programs that were taking place under uh, Peronism or justicialism, 
however you want to approach it. And the film seems to present the idea that uh, if not for her, none of this would have taken place. And uh, that is far from the truth. However, there is a kernel of truth. I have read places that it is largely believed that had she not died the early death that she did in the 1950s during his second term as president, uh, maybe the coup in 1955 might not have happened Hmm. because she was a very popular figure. Now, the casting of Madonna. Madonna is basically the archetypical... She's the horror of Babylon, right? She's she's the uh, notorious mud shark and figurehead of American culture depravity. So I found that the fact that she was cast to play Eva Perón to be very distasteful to begin with, because while it's true that Eva Perón in her time was somewhat of a scandalous figure, considering that she was a woman uh, being involved in a presidential election, and she was an actress, et cetera. Uh, this was the first time, by the way, that that had ever happened, I think, in Latin American politics across the board. She did take a rather active role in the campaign. And she did have a, a somewhat significant role in the administration as well. However, she was, it's implied that in the film, it's implied that she was basically a Madonna-like figure, that she was some kind of whore, that uh, you know he scandalized the, the nation by eloping with this this is not accurate by today's standard she's a very modest woman in fact probably suspiciously so by today's standards well but we always have to put things in context i, I believe at the time uh she she felt i don't know if it was from argentina per se but she did this tour of uh, europe where she visited a lot of uh, heads of state and uh, she was actually snubbed by the I think, Queen of England. And that actually, I think, bothered her a lot. And she she was well-received in France, and she always had this uh, like fashion thing going on. So she would wear all these uh, Christian Dior outfits. And um, But I think uh, it's notable that after that tour, she started dressing more conservatively. Uh, so I, I don't know that much about her, but that much I've heard. Well, there is an element to which she is trying to, they're attempting to make her into this feminist icon. And uh, we can go down the rabbit hole a little bit here, but I'll actually, let me provide a quote from the woman herself. She says, uh, Every day, thousands of women forsake the feminine camp and begin to live like men. They work like them. They prefer, like them, the street to the home. They are not resigned to being either mothers or wives. They substitute for men everywhere. Is this feminism? I think rather that it must be the masculinization of our sex. And I wonder if all this has solved our problem, but no, all the old ills continue rampant and new ones to appear. The number of women who look down upon the occupation of homemaking increases every day. And yet that is what we were born for. We feel that we are born for the home and in the home is too great a burden for our shoulders. Then we give up the home, go out to find a solution, feel that the answer lies in obtaining economic independence and working somewhere. But that work makes us equal to men. And no, we are not like them. We feel the need of giving rather than receiving. Can't we work for anything else than earning wages like men? 
Now there, there's some comments of hers on the feminism question. Yeah, again, it's hard to know what that means without looking at the context of where it comes from. I mean, by today's standards, that sounds fairly conservative. But again, going back in time, everywhere was arguably more conservative. And especially in a place like Argentina, which is still to this day fairly Catholic, but especially then, uh, there's a lot of, um, especially like a South American style of Catholicism, which seems in many ways more hardcore than much of what Europe and North America has. And the family and the woman's place in the home seems to be a bit more important. And so I would not necessarily read that as sort of an anti-feminist statement. It sounds, uh, sounds a bit progressive to be honest, but yes, I, I think that's accurate. I think that what the film tries to portray her as, uh, I think that the, the likeness of Madonna and is there's a serious projection going on here. Uh, at the very least, you can say that Madonna would never have made such a statement as those. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Papa, don't preach. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so uh, we can talk a little bit about the context of the events that, that are depicted in, in this uh, piece of shit. Um, maybe we can start with Perón the man. I, I think that he is a very admirable figure in many in many respects. And I, I also think that if I had to guess what some of the purpose of this was, was to because they were the, the legacy of the Perons is very significant in Latin America. And I think that because there is some there is to an extent a personality cult around Eva that by, I guess, doubling down on that and, and painting this very Hollywood picture uh, they're trying to distract from what is actually interesting part of the story so do they so, do they go into the politics or the historical events or is it really just kind of a character drama uh well the politics are the background of sort of this uh, country girl like goes to the city and uh, becomes much beloved saint figure mm -hmm. uh it's you have you, that's actually the part of the film i think that you see the most oliver stone and it's not in a good way uh, when they depict the, the events of the the coup that took place in 1943 because if we back up here for a moment so there was a lot going on latin american politics are like this it's it's always it's there it's a very dense rabbit hole as far as coups go you know successive coups after coups and factionalism and you know factions within factions that split off and go into the mountains and come back and assassinate people only to be eradicated themselves and you know torture and kidnapping and you know very spicy politics the latins are they're spicy people and they're, they're like coups a lot of a lot of military <laughs> juntas I, I think that I, I wish Hank was here actually to comment on that because yeah. my take on that, generally speaking, Hank's very good on the coup stuff. But uh, military in Latin American countries, very little of the state apparatus and just power centers in general were ever really well developed. And so it was the military that was always the one institution that was able to deliver anything. 
And so in any time of political chaos, basically a military coup is just what's expected. And it's what everyone who holds interests in the country want, for better or for worse. It's usually the safe bet, right? And I think that when you look at the portrayal of the of the 1943 coup. There had been another coup in the 1930s, early 1930s, I believe. It was all in a state of flux because this is a, you know, you're also going into the war years. And the British Empire did have a lot of interests in Argentina. And uh, this is actually one of the driving forces of the internal state politics at the time. Uh, the question of neutrality the government's position on the war in Europe was a serious matter. The uh, military corps and the place basically where, I mean, where Juan Perón himself came from uh, was had a very pro-German orientation, partly because of the, the nature of the, of the military education that took place there. So there were a lot of pro-Axis forces within the military. And the fact that the Argentine state was neutral in the war was the subject of a lot of pressure from the United States and from the UK. And one of the probably one of the main deciding forces behind the coup that took place in 1943 was the appointment of uh, basically a, a shill for British interests to a key position in the government. And so there was a military coup that. It was an organization as United, a group of United officers or officers Unidos or what have you. It was the GOU. And Perón was not heavily involved in the like the specific events that took place on. I think it was in June of 1943. Uh, but he was in. He was involved, and he these were his people. He was a, he was a member, etc. And that was his shoe into the into the real state apparatus. Cause prior to that, he had had a rather, I guess, uneventful military career. He was a, basically a professor in a certain sense. He, he wrote a lot of books on strategy and military history, doctrine, that kind of thing. And he eventually, uh, actually went on a, a military, uh, mission to study in Europe. And this is in you know 1940, so he was going to Spain and, and the Third Reich and Hungary and, and France, and um, later he he goes to Italy as well, and that was very important because the the Italian fascist movement and Mussolini himself was a huge influence on Perón and his political thinking. But uh, I sidetracked myself a little bit because what I was going to say was that in the in the film, the depiction of the coup is, is it definitely has Oliver Stone fingerprints on it. Like, have you ever seen the film uh, Salvador? Oh, are you asking me? No, I haven't seen it. Adam, so, um, Adam is not quite the cinephile that I am. But I, I do like Oliver Stone, though. I actually wasn't even aware of that movie. I might check it out, though. Um, you might like it. It's got James Woods in it. Uh, he's he's a photographer. <laughs> so the last film he was in. I don't know if he's working these days in Hollywood. Actually... Yeah, well, it was the last. I think that's when he was. I I don't really know what James's would, James Wood's personal thing is, but I, I think he was like a leftist or something back then. I'm not sure. The film is very like boilerplate. It, it 
like the the scene in Evita, it it had me immediately thinking of Salvador. It's it's a very like bad men in military uniform, like hate freedom and all nice things, and uh, you know the innocent idealist communist workers just want a better life. Blah blah blah, and the United States is going to always side with bad military man or whatever. That's kind of the Oliver Stone guide to third world. I, I never America. really saw Stone as a leftist per se, though. He's kind of more of just like a cynic when it comes to power, it seems. But he, um, okay, that's what's interesting about Stone is he is he's a leftist, but he's he's a leftist that has he kind of gets it a little bit. Yeah, as far as the you know, and Perone, he's not naive about how power works. It seems. Well, he's not. Yeah, and he also is not. He's not a full-blown Trotskyite, right? He he understands part of like he would frame the uh, what happened in Vietnam as uh, to a certain extent. I don't know if he would use the word nationalism exactly, but he would say it was basically a nationalist revolution against uh, Western imperialism in one form or another, whatever specific words he would use to describe it. that That's kind of his bent. So he does kind of get it. And that's the story of Argentina in the post-war era, is it's trying to resist yeah. you know, the tentacles of you know, the monster, the international one, monster. One of the ways that I think Perón did that, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but he... Oh, hello, Hans. Oh, hi there. He put in uh, a huge amount of tariffs, if I remember correctly, and he tried to basically tariff... Uh, most uh, core industrial goods and most sort of core cyclical products, especially after 1946. And I think the idea was... Autarky. Yes, we're going to have um, internalized growth, you know, uh, post-global growth, I think was the idea. And Argentina took it upon itself to, uh, in, in this sense, increase wages of the urban industrial sectors. And one of the other ways in which they were able to do that, and they were kind of able to also uh, decrease the cost of living, was to uh, put in place uh, uh, the IAPI, uh, like these, these export taxes and, and other ways of reducing the agricultural prices, which was taking money out of uh, probably, I think, would have been like you know, large private landowners in Argentina and sort of um, reducing their wealth increasing the wealth of the urban industrial core and then what, whatever was left over was poured into like social expenditure programs that would then be spent on the urban industrial core and there was intended to be this like um sort of cyclical growth internalized cyclical growth model and in that sense you're right he did kind of take that aspect from Mussolini which was you know we need to decrease the power of the large private landowners or we need to decrease the power of the agricultural sector in Argentina, which drove the Argentine economy for a long time. And we need to turn it into a industrial economy that is not reliant on uh, the rest of the world, so to speak. It's not reliant on maybe the, the Soviet world and certainly not reliant on the Western world, which Argentina was very sort of uh, opposed to. Which is something that was held over their heads. There were a lot of issues surrounding, uh, they got in trouble with the United States for attempting to buy arms from uh, Germany during the war. 
And basically they had accounts frozen in the United States and they were in a tough spot because basically they were trying to industrialize and modernize what was in many respects sort of this colonial backwater. And they were trying to do this at a time, a very difficult time politically when you have these two you know, the, the emergence of this bipolar world on, on the cusp of, and after the defeat of Germany, the emergence of, you know, the sandwich of hell between the United States and the USSR. And so there were still things that they desperately needed, particularly capital goods, uh, in order to complete this industrial process. I mean, the, their main product at the time was were agricultural products, particularly meat. But then they, there were a lot, they ran into a lot of conflict with, the with the nascent new world order so to speak with respect to international monetary policy i mean these were a lot of the factors that led to his removal in 1955 but with respect to fascism i mean there's really no getting around it he was absolutely in the same tradition as mussolini i mean the the peronism for lack of a you know I mean, I suppose the best definition for Peronism is Peronism or justice, justicialism, as he would have described it. That was the party in his name. Uh, it is a form of national syndicalism, or if you'd like, national socialism. Yeah, and, and I think part of the problem with it, I mean, there are maybe some benefits to it, but like I'm uh, reading an excerpt from this book. Uh, this this is fr- mostly free on Google Books, by the way, guys. Uh political economy of Argentina. Um, but it's, you know, this period was characterized by from 46 to 83, even though Perón was, I think, mostly gone. His policies were pretty much just still in effect or part of his ideology was still in effect. Uh, they only had a annual growth rate of like roughly 2.7% per year and the per capita rate was 0.7% per year, uh, which is... You know, lagged behind a lot of their certainly competitors on the global stage, and was not nearly you know commiserate with the general growth pattern of play, of other places in in Latin America or, or other sort of developing economies. And you talking about during uh, Perón's administration? Yeah, yeah. And the, like the problem was from forty six to eighty three. And the well, that's problem, oh well, that's a large time scale. So I know, but what, what I'm saying is that. Not only was that during Perón's administration, but that was sort of the period where Peronism as the economic ideology was somewhat in effect. Yeah, it gets complicated. Yeah. The, you can only really understand the Peron. The only real true Peronist period is his first two terms. I mean, he does return in the 1970s for sort of a short-lived uh, comeback, but we can discuss that a little bit maybe later, but things are not quite the same by the 1970s. But what should be understood first and foremost is that after Peron is removed from power and driven into exile in, uh, in following the coup in 1955, uh, they, the state takes very serious measures to, you know, do everything that they can to undo what reforms he put in place and as well as to sell the country out to foreigners. Well, also, interestingly, there's a graph in this book very early on, and it goes, looks at the inflation rate. And in 1955 is when the inflation rate goes up several percent almost immediately. And this thus sort of begins the Argentine inflationary problem that persists until the the crises of the, the, the 90s. Um, but it does really begin in 55 when he's sort of taken out. And I think that 
when you start to reintroduce a, an economy to the global stage, inevitably you will get you know price inflation. And I think that Perone had a, a model of uh, you know we're going to increase the cost of labor so that we can help out uh, the workers yeah, this- in an in industrial economy, but that'll keep the inflation rate down. So it was actually somewhat of a deflationary economy while he was in charge. But as soon as the country opened up and uh, as soon as uh, uh, Argenti- Argentina's sort of old competitors and come into the scene and start to reenter the country, the inflation rate yeah, shoots and they, up. And they bring in, as people like Naomi Klein would, would refer to, they bring in the Chicago boys. Right. They have, you know, these Freedmanites who are put in charge of their who are, bank. Who are put into uh, Chile as well. Yes. Yeah. And this and is Chile, where the, I, the IMF gets involved, too. Like, yeah, right after he's out of there, the IMF has this stabilization, whatever they put into place. And, like, immediately, every couple of years, they have another inflationary crisis or currency crisis. Like, the IMF basically puts Argentina on this very topsy-turvy inflationary cycle that, you know, wrecks wrecks the country, effectively. These um, were precisely the forces he was trying to resist. And it's... Yeah. It's actually one of the key differences between someone like Perón and someone who is really an IMF good boy uh, like Pinochet. In fact, Perón said something to the effect of that with Pinochet. I think they met only one time, but he said something along the lines of uh, Pinochet represents quantities that are well known to him. Because keep in mind, he's he's basically he he's in a very difficult position, especially following the war, and. You have a lot of uh, foreign interests that are clawing at the at the door to get in, and I think we can maybe discuss his uh, <laughs> what exactly took place here. So after the uh, it, he eventually does declare war on Germany at his capacity as a war minister. Uh, He does this. They still aren't going to forgive him for this, right? Uh, They put it off for long enough. However, this was not an optimal solution because it also pissed off a lot of his fellow military men who were really very pro-Axis. And even though this was kind of a token gesture designed to get the United States, you know, the State Department off of his back, uh, it, it was not enough. And that's what ends up happening is he gets removed from government in 1945 by other factions within, you know, the military government. And this is when, you know, Eva Perón enters the scene. There was this earthquake that it was actually quite bad. It killed a good number of people. And she was involved. They became involved around this time uh, through aid efforts regarding this earthquake and her organizing radio people, basically a union for radio workers. And around this time, uh, you, you also have his, the, we, we should discuss, I guess, the coalition that brought him to power, which was the, the labor coalition, was the unions. I mean, that, that was how he rose to become president, was his support of unionization and his pro-labor politics from a non-Marxist perspective. Uh, and uh, quite a bit of people in the in the uh, military government were also am- amenable to these kinds of politics as well. I mean, considering that this is exactly what was taking place in Europe, right? I, I, I think in general, this is a winning formula as far as it goes, you know, all things being equal. To be 
you know, in favor of working people and try to create policies that make the country more livable for people who work and produce, while at the same time not hating your country and trying to undermine it, I think is, a, is, always, a, is always a winning formula. <laughs> I know it's uh, it's almost uh, so appealing. You wonder why it's never talked about on the debate yeah. stage. And that's precisely what they they can't forgive him for. Uh, but many people did appreciate it. I mean, so much so that I mean, that's what it was. a It was a populist movement that got him out of he got removed and put on, you know, put in time out in like the, the time out island they have or whatever for a few months. And they let him out and they, they realize like they're not keeping this shit together and they're going to have to run elections. So he announces his candidacy. That's around the same time he marries Eva. And his announcement and like the, the demonstration, uh, he goes out, you know, Mussolini style and addresses the crowd. Uh, that has henceforth been considered and I believe is still celebrated there as Loyalty Day. <laughs> Needless to say, the uh, the usual suspects all lined up to oppose him. So we should talk about that. The coalition that opposed Brown. Well, it's the same coalition that you would expect to find, right? It's the coalition that's made up of uh, the local entrenched oligarchs, or maybe I guess you would refer to as conservatives, namely people. Conservatives, I, I just I define conservatives as people who genuinely find that things are working out well for them. And they don't want things to change because things are working great. As and these well would have been as, people with huge economic ties to the British Empire, right? These would have been the people who yes, correct. owned the yeah, worked with the British on the railroad industry and they yep. were exporting food to Britain and mm -hmm. yeah, things like yeah, that. That's it. That's exactly correct. Uh, but they would be an alliance, the conservatives would be an alliance with the communists and the uh, oppositional socialists, as well as the foreign oligarchs. Uh, and the point man that was heading, this is the, the front that was rallied to oppose him, was the Democratic Union. So, you know, liberals, communists, capitalists, you know, the, the, the usual suspects, as well as the American ambassador, who is a name, a man by the name of the Spruill Braden. I don't know how you even say his first name. It's S-P-R-U-I-L-L-E, Braden. Okay. So who is this guy? Well, he was the U.S. ambassador to Argentina, and he was, of course, a you know Council on Foreign Relations guy, personal friend of Paul Warburg and Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, he was a uh, it, it, he was a, a Harriman man as well, and uh, he also coordinated the for the CIA the 1954 Arbenz coup for the CIA and for the fruit men. Uh, which also, by the way, he was a United Fruit Company lobbyist. So this is the man uh, who wants to come bring democracy to make sure that democracy goes off without a hitch in Argentina. But they lost. They lost. Uh, which is always nice, even if it's short-lived. So... Well, that, the, that's what that's what's interesting. Like, how did they lose? I mean, was it actually just Perón just got out outvoted populism them? Populism works. I mean, the reason yeah. you got to, you know, that's the thing about democracy, right? It's like, why do you run an election to begin with? Well, you run an election because you can legitimize your, yeah. you know, your, your already told victory. The problem with running an election, though, is if it 
become such to where the person you don't want to win is just too popular. You know, this this is always the problem. This is why they hate you know, what they call populism. And that's what he was. He was a populist. That is to say, he was able to form a coalition across large sections of Argentine society, from, you know, the military to the working people, to even the elements of the church. He runs into problems with the church later. Uh, we can talk about that later as well. But, I mean, he was a Catholic, and he did receive Catholic support, uh, or at least official Catholic support, in the uh, in the early days, in the in the nineteen. 19- 46 election. So his he had the winning coalition, right? At least at the time. And they ran, uh, it was actually really remarkable, the types of propaganda that was run by the Americanist interests. Uh, they published a, the State Department and this uh, ambassador, Braden, published this uh, blue book which has really, it's remarkable uh, how similar it is to what you see today when non-aligned states are targeted for human rights intervention. So, of course, Nazi leaders, Nazi groups, and organizations have combined with Argentine totalitarian groups to create a Nazi fascist state. Members of the military regime who have controlled the government since June 1943 conspired with the enemy to undermine governments in neighboring countries in order to destroy their collaboration with the allies in an effort to align them in a pro-axis bloc. Successive Argentine governments protected the enemy in economic matters in order to preserve Axis industrial and commercial power in Argentina. Uh, it, it goes on and on like this, uh, but one of my favorites is... Uh, by brutal use of force and terrorist methods to strike down all opposition from the Argentine people by the military regime has made a mockery of its pledge to the United Nations to reaffirm faith in human rights in the dignity and the worth of the human persons. I mean, this is 1940s. The script has not changed in almost 100. We're, we're, it's almost 100 years of this fucking bullshit. You know, <laughs> it's did, really incredible. Do they teach this in? journalism school or do the Rothschilds basically just this is, uh, a, state de- this is a state department copy journalism. these things and send them out yeah to all it's a copy race. pasta yeah american american foreign policy has been a copy pasta since 1945 yeah uh needless to say people aren't falling for this bullshit and it is just so obvious who is against i mean it's it's basically people who want to undermine the country could not make themselves more clear well it seemed like the like the British railroad interests were in particular some kind of huge obstacle. You know, I was reading about this a little bit where going into Perón's sort of takeover of the country, um, there were two large railroad systems in Argentina that maintained sort of the functionality of the country. There was a much smaller French network, and then there was the British network. And the French rails, the French rail network, the Argentines were able to acquire like very easily, very successfully, no problem. They got it done in less than a year. But when it came to the British system, they were entirely unable to get the British to agree to anything. And they realized very quickly, you know, we have a situation in which if we don't get these railroads running, there's no way we're going to industrialize this country when there's no way we're going to get food to the cities adequately quickly enough. 
so that we can have industrial cities, factories, and, and, and so on. Like, it's just not going to happen. So eventually, the British kind of pull this runaround on them. And then the next year, they force the Argentines to pay $600 million American for a railroad system that was already there inside Argentina. And in today's money, I don't even know what that would be. But at the time, to pay $600 million uh, from the fledgling Argentine Peron government um, was a huge like debacle. The whole thing was just poorly uh, thought out. And, you know, it turned out that they didn't even really understand how to utilize it and operate it properly. So there was this learning curve period. And from there on out, there was this constant trouble where the British um, kept attempting to renege on the deal and kept trying to uh, ask for some kind of ownership stake in the railroads they just sold. And then eventually they tried to sell more railroads and more railroad systems to Perón because they knew that you know he was he was sort of desperate to industrialize quickly uh and he did cooperate to an extent with getting more railroads in from britain but this seemed to be one of the ways in which you know the british sort of retained some level of power and ebb and flow inside argentina and that they had an ability to force Perón to occasionally come back to them and ask for some kind of assistance uh whether it was technical or an expansionist mode for their uh, for the railroad system that was already in place that Argentines had largely built uh, really just under British command. Um, there were a lot of other interests. There were, um, you know, a lot of people who had obviously these deals with the private farmers that had been exporting for years. And that was Argentina's sort of bread and butter industry was exporting large amounts of food and and also operating a tr like a trade network you know, along their, their coasts, they, uh, they had the ability to, you know, maintain parts of international trade and they were a big entryway into the rest of Latin America. But a lot of these mostly British interests, and then I, I'm assuming that the British complaints filtered through to the United States, uh, really drove Perón crazy. And it ended up being, you know, somewhat his downfall because Argentina had been set up entirely by the British as basically a big farm and a big farm that's sole job was to produce food and sell food and maybe engage in the, the merchant trade. Um, it was not set up for industrialization. And so that, that was the food. colonial model or mercantilism in right, general. Right. It was basically right. having uh, the home country produce industrial goods and have the colonies send raw materials to them and buy the industrial goods. Yeah. And so if you had a colony like the United States or others uh, who wanted to develop industrially and, and have some independence and strength themselves, uh, that was not uh, not approved of by yeah, it's London. The, the trade and monetary issues were very much at the heart of this. And I just wanted to add, if you want to continue, Hans, that's perfectly fine. But to add some further context to this, keep in mind that this, in the post-war era, this is occupied Europe. This is the Marshall Zone. So it's not like they could, they're faced with a situation where to, to trade or to barter, which is what they had preferred to do, uh, their exports in Europe meant going through the American Jew occupiers. Right. And it, and part of this was all denominated in dollars. So uh, this paper I was reading, Perón had been sort of 
blessed with World War II. And I think he was also counting on a World War III, like an actual hot conventional war to happen because he could kind of fulfill the same role he that Argentina had fulfilled for the majority of World War II, which was neutrality, retooling whatever industry you do have to support the war effort while all these other countries are being bombed to shit and then sending them a ton of food. And in doing that, um, Argentina, which then Perón inherited, had accumulated some massive amount of foreign currency, large amounts of U.S. dollars, and which was perfect because Bretton Woods happens, you know, the new global order is instituted and they have uh, billions of dollars worth of American dollars in their bank and they can do whatever they want with it. Well, of course, the first thing that they are pressured to do by the British is to spend an ungodly amount of Ameri of their foreign currency exchange on the railroads inside the country. All right, it's not like the British are going to build them new railroads. Then they continue to spend more money towards this like railroad endeavor. And it ended up putting them in this terrible position where they were slowly siphoning away all of their valuable foreign currencies to the British predominantly uh, in exchange for sort of menial services or goods that did not allow them to adequately uh, industrialize. You know, the whole, like the entire Peronist agenda and I think period was really about looking at the world and saying that, uh, you know, if, if we don't industrialize and we don't tool up this economy and try and get it to a point of competition with other economies and sort of our similar standing, um, we're just going to be left behind. Because I think he had seen that countries with large industrial capacity had been the big players in the war. They were the ones who made the big decisions. If you could produce a lot of goods and industrial capital, you had a certain amount of power. I mean, Japan was a nobody. I mean, an absolute nobody in the 1840s. By the 1940s, Japan is an industrial powerhouse. And because they are, they have, they had a big say on the global stage. They were one of the chief fighters of a massive global war. So I think that he looked at that and said, I need to spend what money I have to get us ready to industrialize. But the rails, I mean, not to use a pun, but the rails sort of came off the track before he could really get to that point. And he had spent so much of the valuable time and money in those early periods on uh, a railroad project and other kind of failed projects that, that, that didn't really amount to much. And so they sort of squandered that opportunity that I think he saw to rebuild the country and to position it as sort of like a, uh, sort of the, this, a very large industrialized Switzerland of Latin America. I think that he, he yeah, he was, con he was confronted with a almost insurmountable task. And I think he did a great job uh, as far as can be said of his, of his short time being able to do it. And so much so, I mean, so impactful that, I mean, to this day in Argentina, people claim the mantle of Peronism, uh, which we can talk about a little bit towards the end as far as his legacy, because it gets very, it gets very Latin American. Uh, suffice to say that Contemporary Peronists have little to nothing to do with the man and his ideology. Uh, if we could say, as far as what the goals of the policies he's implementing, it was first and foremost, above all else, uh, the goal was sovereignty. It was a sovereign Argentina, independent of 
the American bloc and now the occupied European American bloc, as well as the Soviet bloc. And they were willing to make approaches to the Soviet Union. They had no interest in becoming another so- Soviet satellite state, but they were absolutely willing to deal with the Soviets. So we can discuss maybe just a little bit about his, where the man was coming from ideologically. I think so he, he, he kind of fell on that line of like, there were, there were a couple of nations in the Cold War that played this game. Algeria was one of them. They never really took anyone's side, but definitely was willing to work and deal with just about anyone. And uh, well, I think India other? was one of the most famous non. India, yes, Finland was another. I mean, there there were a collection of countries around the world that, whether for geographic reasons, um, or because they were they were smart enough to to realize that they shouldn't pick a side, and they should be willing to work with anyone to an extent, knowing full well that if you work too much with one side, you will definitely be acculturated into that side's empire well and it so, wasn't just a, a positional situation like he there was there were very clear ideological backbone to all of this it wasn't just uh, what's good for us it's it was a rejection of the actual of the ideologies that these powers represented a rejection of capitalism and a rejection of communism it was a true third position uh, ideology that he was he was trying to base a state off of I can read some quotes from him. I mean, the ideology uh, was his ideology was uh, justicialism and uh, the aim of the just that's a strange word to say. So forgive me. The aim of the justicialist state is the overcoming of class struggle by social collaboration and the dignifying of man. Society will have to be in harmony in which there is no dissonance. so for the revolution to be made possible, it was necessary that the nationalist groups become aware of the capitalist oppression they suffered, just as the proletariat and the labor groups become aware of the historical subjugation of the community by bourgeois oligarchy. The Peronist revolution seeks, therefore, to reach a compromise between individualist capitalism and state capitalism, which uh, is state capitalism by which he's referring to the USSR. And not just to improve relations between capital and labor. The Peronist revolution entirely repudiates any form of exploitation of man by man and wants to return in all fields to the natural social order. This is the meaning of our third position. And uh, this is, I guess, to get really deep into the weeds, into things like Sorel, Moras, and that kind of thing, was probably the subject of another episode. However, I will point out that there is at this time in the 20th century, you know, we're having to contend with the death of the old order of, of monarchical rule. And something was going to have to fill the void in order to have, you know, to restore and maintain a organic social order and community. And capitalism and commun liberal capitalism and communism were not going to cut it. And so just a I found interesting his comments on the French Revolution, which would be Familiar, I think, to a lot of reactionary listeners to this program. Here he says, in the late 18th century, the natural social order was broken by a pathological phenomenon whose consequences we continue to suffer. Marginalized groups in society who were engaged in overseas trade and clandestinely loan interest became rich without thereby achieving 
more material comforts. They aspired to power and after a long process of ideological subversion, managed to seize the French state and then force or propaganda other states in the Western world. So he's basically identifying um, the Western, the ruling Western ideologies with the Jacobins, which is correct. And as to the enemy, uh, he had an interesting phrase that he described it. He called it the international synarchy, which uh, is almost identical in many respects to what I guess the, <laughs> the neo-reactionaries refer to as the synagogue. It is proven that an international banking consortium abundantly subsidized Trotsky in 1917. Big finance has no country but only interests, uh, which is an echo right there of uh, uh, Primo de Rivera who said the, the rich have no nation. The Cold War and localized conflicts are but episodes of mutual convenience, allowing the United States to keep its faltering economy afloat and the Soviet Union to strengthen the internal stress without which its empire runs in serious danger of disintegrating. Chances are that those who serve in Washington and Moscow, the phone that joins the White House to the Kremlin speaks the same language, and this language is neither Russian nor English. Mm -hmm. What could that language be? It's Jew. That language is Jew. Just uh, just for anyone who missed it. So, okay, so then riddle me this. This guy seems to know the score. Why exactly was he so infatuated with FDR, who we all know had the, quote, brain trust, and we all know who was in the brain trust and who modeled the New Deal and modeled the, the remaking of the American economy. So why was he? Wasn't he wasn't infatuated. He just, it was the, um, I mean, he was quite hostile to the to that administration, but I, I think that just the, that, that public works projects and infrastructure projects, that was something that he was very interested in, and other European states were doing that as well, and that, that was his, his primary focus, no doubt. Well, my understanding is that he did quote, and in fact, in, I don't know, plagiarize is the, the right word but parlay pretty much the entirety of an of the of uh the entirety of fdr's second inaugural address in one of his speeches uh i mean maybe infatuated is strong but it does seem interesting that he is sort of he respects or even is interested in this sort of approach but did he not realize who was really working with fdr or did he not really care or did he think that there was something that was still noble about it oh he he knew the score i mean yeah one of the famous quotes like so he's, here's another one uh the problem is to free the country and to remain free that is we must confront the international synarchy of communism capitalism freemasonry judaism and the catholic church operated from the united nations all these forces act on the world through thousands of agencies well, in that sense, it does start to sound more like Franco's Spain. I mean, the, the comments about resisting capitalism, resisting socialism, the UN, resisting uh, Freemasonry, uh, particularly singling that out, you know, that, that does sound a lot like Francoism. Although it is interesting to kind of remark on the differences in Perón's relationship with the Catholic Church versus Franco's relationship with the Catholic Church. And maybe it was sort of what was happening to the Catholic Church in Spain that woke them up and made them more amenable to Franco, or 
there was some some kind of other inside politicking that was going on that you know diminished the friendship that they had with Perón. But it is interesting that Franco remodeled the Spanish state with the Catholic Church in a very important role. And in fact, you know that they were sort of one of the sort of the tripartite or one of the pieces of the tripartite of Francoist Spain. You know, managing the country playing a very large part in the country's day-to-day function and its culture. Whereas with Perón, it seems like he had this falling out with them for some reason. And then he sort of uh, added them to this list of uh, conspirators against him. And well, I, he's I'm not wrong. To, I mean, the I'm Catholic well, Church is 100 uh, percent an instrument of international subversion at this point. Well, well, then why exactly were they? So why were they doing that? To Perón at the time, or were they subverting Perón? But would they they were not doing so with Franco. Was it just the they, they weren't were necessarily okay? So what happened? They weren't necessarily they, okay. First of all, those statements uh, those were uh, in hindsight. Those were in the seventies. Uh, he did not make the statement about the church while he was president. Ah, uh, okay. And one of the things, one of the theories as to what was going on. So the reason that he was able to. He ousted from power in 1955 uh, definitely was make the Catholic bloc, like the hardcore, like the Catholic nationalist uh, bloc was mobilized against him, particularly through the Navy. And uh, this was done one. There were some moves that were made under the Perrin administration uh, that very much upset the church and its representatives. Uh, he legalized I wouldn't say he, but le- under his administration uh, in the mid-1950s, uh, divorce and prostitution were both, uh, I won't say legalized exactly, there's a little more nuance to it, but these were things that were brought under state regulation, and there was an effort to remove, to do some secularism when it came to educational institutions. And I don't, like this is a man who had a lot on his plate at the time. This is not these weren't things he was micromanaging or involved in. I think that it's very reasonable and I've seen this put forward that what was happening was uh you know foreign subversive agents were driving a wedge uh, deliberately and there were acts of violence as well. Um, following what happened was in 1955, when he was giving a speech, uh, you know, Mussolini style, epic style, right? The Navy ran fucking bombers into the crowd and dr- they dropped bombs and killed like 300 people, which is just incredible. And following this, there were reprisals on Catholic institutions. Now, the thing was, is Perón did not advocate for these reprisals, nor is it really clear that it was true Perón loyalists who were responsible for these, because this is when the politics start to get really muddy. Because following, like after he leaves power, basically, like you have these elements of, of the Perón movement and members of the Justicialist Party who basically go full Trotskyite. And this, you also have the right wing as well. And it became this umbrella thing. Like basically anyone involved in politics is now going to claim the mantle of Peron. Cause it was, it was like, you know, it was the political revolution in Argentina and it tapped into so much both on the left and the right as it should, because it's, it's trying to be a synthesis and go beyond the, you know, capitalism and communism dialectic. 
that there was a lot of opportunity for people to, you know, wedge their own goals into this. And I don't think that he made any real specific moves against the Catholic Church at that time on purpose, but I think that whatever forces were wanting to see the downfall of Peron were able to stick that wedge in there and get uh, get some of the, the nationalist Catholic types uh, on board with his removal. Hmm. I should add yeah, I mean, to... I, well, I'm just, I'm thinking that, uh, postulating that perhaps the the experiences that the Spanish Catholic Church went through in the Civil War uh, made them a little bit more amenable to someone like Franco. And, you know, had, had maybe had there been a, a civil war of that scale and intensity in Argentina in the, the 30s and 40s, and it, it seems like Argentina could have descended into that. Oh, absolutely. And he specifically, that's actually kind of what, he didn't want a civil war, and that's why he basically yeah. took exile. Uh, there, he could have easily, and I think later he came to the point where he, I think, I never found him saying specifically that he regretted not doubling down and just going like full, you know, ultra violence, I guess. Uh, because there were, it's interestingly enough, Eva, before she died, had like a bunch of guns that she had bought and was like ready to give to uh, the most hardcore. Because she lived through, there was an attempted coup in like 1951 or 1952. This is like right before her death. And she's actually not even told of, she's, because she's dying of cancer and she's not told of it. And uh, it was, it was defeated and he took a very merciful approach to the, to the traitors who were involved in this. And that was his general attitude. He was a very much a, I mean, he, he was a classically minded kind of man. So, you know, everything in moderation and he didn't want, he wasn't like some, even though he's a military man, he wasn't like trigger happy kind of guy. He didn't want violence, but violence came regardless. And in, in, again, in the very Latin American kind of way, because they basically had like, after that, another 20 years of on and off of, of their version of the Troubles. And who knew exactly who was financing these various factions? Uh, there's evidence that points to, again, the usual suspects. I mean, that's Latin America for you. It's, there's, it's a free-for-all of a subversion and in foreign interests trying to seize control of some very valuable, um, some some very... Some very profitable things. Well, you know, much of the world was sort of enveloped in, uh, to varying degrees, their own form of the troubles, I guess, to use your phrase, uh, from, you know, the end of the British Empire until beginning of the 80s, really, mid-70s, I, I guess. But uh, particularly the entire Latin American world went through this in varying ways they went through this in this time frame italy went through this uh france even started to go through this in the 60s uh, portugal went through this turkey went through this ireland went through this and you know argentina was kind of wrapped up in this general trend i think of sort of uh, developing or second world or quasi first world with you know, a lot of problems and a lot of flaws who were trying to find uh, some kind of common political ground or trying to uh, retool themselves for both sovereignty and for sort of the new 
industrial and post-industrial world. And all across these stretches of Latin America and, and Europe, I think a lot of these various leaders and a lot of these uh, horrible periods, whether you know whether or not there was there were foreigners getting involved and there were foreign interests, which there invariably were. Uh, even I think if you remove that, there would have if there was no foreign involvement or a very limited amount. I think that a lot of these countries still would have gone through this. I think Argentina would have. Because I, you know, again, this is a, a a farming colony of the British Empire that's basically been told you have to figure things out for yourself now. And it does make me wonder if Argentina would have been better off in some different timeline had they. Yeah, been, they would have been had, better off had, had the had right side been, won the war. <laughs> well, or had they would they have been better off? If they had remained under British control as, as effectively a British farming territory, where the, the standard of living would have been slightly higher, and they would have you know had the traditional Argentine industries, and they would have served a bigger role in the New World with Britain, but would they have been better off if they had kind of avoided Perón, or was Perón necessary to? bring them into the to the new world. I mean, regardless of like, you know, per, whether Perón was successful, I think in some ways he was very not successful, in some ways he was. He did succeed. He did succeed in, in completely transforming Argentina. In like 10 years, in one decade, he completely changed the country top to bottom. He changed the entire economic dynamic. He changed the entire standard of living. He changed the entire culture. He put Argentina on a completely different path than it had probably ever been or was going to be on. So would it, would it have been better, and was it necessary for Peron, even if there were problems, or would it have been better if, if Argentina had stayed as part of some kind of new uh, or remnant British empire? Well, better. I think that one, one of the main impacts of Peronism was starting, I, you see echoes of it in people like the late uh, Hugo Chavez, you know, how is Latin America going to find it, find its way to its own independent block? Yeah, and I think that that's part of the problem, too, is no one in Latin America really seems to know where they're going. And I think that even when you do kind of take the reins off and you do kind of let them do their own thing, there, there seems to be a lot of confusion about where they fit in in the world. I mean, are they, it's, it's not poor enough where they can do kind of the China bit, where they basically absorb the geography of production. They can't do that. Well, uh, well one thing to be said is that as far as like which way Latin American man, uh, Perón represented a definitively European uh, spiritual and historical outlook. No, no question about that. Uh, and... I think that the later forms of Latin American nationalism we've seen have a little bit of that, like, you know, rising tide of color element. Uh, well, even modern Argentina has that kind of dynamic going on. It's, yeah, it's wider though than a lot than a, a Venezuela is, but sure, um, sure. You know, so, so is Uruguay, for that matter. Uh, he had a very uh, here's a quote from him on because he wanted to focus. He wanted to remake Argentine society, you know, and it, rather to make it to begin with, since, as you pointed out, it didn't really exist. Uh, it had its own history. It had its history, but 
but it as a organized state uh, as part of an organic community etc you know the fascist idea uh, that has had not been in place yet but he says uh we want intelligence to be in the service of a good soul and a strong man. In this, we are not inventing anything. We are going back to the Greeks who were able to establish that perfect balance in their men in the most glorious period of its history. So I said that this principle is as old as the culture itself. Unfortunately, men have abandoned those roads, but we want them back because we believe that's the truth and we believe that is the path that will lead our people to greatness and happiness. I, I, I mean, he was just a man who had he he had mostly all the right ideas. I mean, it was, he made his mistakes. Sure. I mean, <laughs> he's in a very unenviable, unenviable position, but he also held out his, I mean, he wasn't a coward. I, I mean, it's well known the relationship between, uh, refugees from the third Reich and Argentina. I mean, that's, uh, that's well popularized. In fact, Oh, but you must love how they describe it. Right. The rat lines. Yeah, they call it the rat lines. Yeah. <laughs> sort of an inversion if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. They got, I mean, they had, like, I mean, people know, um, I mean, some of the most famous. Can we rename that to, like, Eagle's Path or something? Like that? <laughs> uh, yeah. Flight something of the Condor. Little... <laughs> <laughs> something yeah. a little bit better. I mean, it was basically, look, like, if you were based and you were on the wrong side of that war, Argentina was the place to be, you know? That was, it was definitely the spot, right? I and mean, we did an episode on uh, on Hans Rudel. We talked a little bit about this fact that, you know, I mean, he was a, he was an advisor in the Argentine government under Perón. I mean, many other people came, I mean, the, uh, so much so that, you know, the Jews kidnapped um, Eichmann. <laughs> People know that story. Wasn't Skorzeny hiding out in Argentina at one point? Yeah, dude, Skorzeny yeah. was a bodyguard to Eva Perón. Yeah, I mean, I I think uh, that... Not just Skorzeny, dude, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, the Ustasi guy, uh, the, the former head of state, uh, Ante Pavlik was oh, there. The, the Croat, yeah. Yeah. No, nah, dude, like... It was the place to be, you know, I'm sure I'm sure you would have had some there would have been nice conversations to be had there. They also got a few scientists, too. I mean, uh, you know, people who are going on their own cognizance, unlike uh, in the case of uh, the Soviets, but or Americans for that matter, really. I mean, I guess you didn't really have a choice, but they had a, they had a few scientists who were working on some ambitious projects some German German scientists. And they uh, they managed to build, I think, South America's first and if i'm not mistaken only nuclear power plant that's correct yeah so what exactly is the modern interpretation of perron is he is he seen as a national hero uh, seen as like a flawed but you know reformist type well this is where it gets complicated because so i opened you weren't present for the beginning when i was talking about this horrible horrible musical uh evita Right. And so I think in the outside of outside of the Latin American world, uh, he's seen probably through that lens as a uh, the husband of Eva Brown. <laughs> Sadly, I think that 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 seems to be what they were going for, actually. 
I don't think Perone and Peronism are really understood. They're certainly not taught. I, I had to read about this. I, I wasn't taught any of this in school. Uh, it it's it's a very verboten. I mean, it's he's a he's a national socialist. I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. This is not like in in the very literal meaning of of the term. I mean, he was a nationalist and a socialist, and he, what he was looking for was to build a corporate state. You know, a non a non Marxian socialist state. That was that was the purpose, and this is the most forbidden idea. Uh, and you always that's why if you pull up like a wiki or something, they're going to be this whole thing on the Jews. Right. Because you can't start talking along these lines without like eventually it's like, yes, but what about it's like you want to do the best for your country and you want your country to be sovereign and free right. from. Foreign right. but, but what about the other people what that about have nothing Jews, to do with that though? country that you owe everything to? Right. You know, like, let's talk about them. Yeah, it's, oh, it's always. God. But what about the Jews? And to that end, uh, there is an interesting statement he made. Uh, by one of these German refugees uh, was talking to him and uh, after the war and he was mentioning because they do have I mean most civilized countries have a Jew problem right that's the nature of being a civilized country these days is you have a Jew problem so a, a German was is asking him about this you know it's like uh, you know Herr Perone what about what about these Jews and he said something to the effect of uh, well Hitler was defeated, and uh, Hitler had 100 million Germans. So it's probably not a great idea for Argentina to get bogged down in this problem. The only solution was to let them work within our community. And he gave them a, a basically this kind of ultimatum where it's like you could – it was in some ways similar to what, what Mussolini was doing, actually, uh, which is, look, you can either be a part of it. You, if you want to contribute to the state, that's fine. You will contribute to the state. It will be the state that you have your only loyalty to. And they don't like this, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, the early days of Mussolini, he he had private conversations with uh, numerous Jewish uh, aristocrats, bankers from northern Italy, and uh, you know he had sort of gotten their assurance that they would not do anything too untoward and that they would remain loyal to the Italian state and, and so forth. And, you know, as far as I can recall, there, that was not a, like, a huge problem in Italy. Uh, I think, first of all, there was not that many of them in Italy. It was not like a significant issue. But I think that to a large extent, the the Italian Jews, it seems as though we're very different than the other ones, and that they, were, they really just they really did just want to make money, but they weren't interested in sort of any other sort of ulterior agenda so much. I think that you know, the the major problem that Perone probably saw in taking up this mantle of like bad boy number one is that. Generally, it puts you in this place, not even just in the current time, but in the realm of history, where unless you are immensely, overwhelmingly successful in every little thing you do, which you will not be able to pull off, and if you're realistic because you're taking a farming colony and trying to turn it into a, a functioning state in like 10 years, 
uh, you know, he probably realized that if he if he got himself too enmeshed in that stuff, it would have just completely overwhelmed yes. all of his other that, all of exactly his other correct. legacies. And wasn't it in the nineties or eighties or nineties when there was the giant synagogue that blew up in Argentina and there was this am I I'm correct on that, right? There was a giant synagogue that was attacked. Hey, and don't cry for me, Argentina. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I and I remember distinctly there. If I'm correct on that, there was, you know, in the context of it, there's all this stuff about how you know our, we need to reconcile with Argentina. I think this is in the foreword or whatever. We need to reconcile with. Argentine and Argentine anti-Semitism and, and Latin American anti-Semitism. And it was in the context of talking about this bombing. And, you know, generally, uh, I think Peron and Latin America are viewed as anti-Semitic because they're strictly anti-Zionist. Uh, many of the politicians down there are anti-Zionist, but it's reflexive. I think that it's important to note that it is it's a reflexive instinct. To them, they played ball with. I mean, they play ball with the Zionist entity. Yeah, they do, but I mean, the, no, I mean, per, the, per, specifically the Peron state. They they play ball with the Zionist and, and sure, entity. but I but I I'm like in the wider sense, a lot of these Latin American leaders in the post-war era have engaged in this stuff, but they've done it sparingly. I think um, that type of so-called anti-Semitism is an outgrowth of the later forms that the sort of the new third position took, which was like the decidedly left wing colored version of it, where it yes. was the third worldist view and the, the BDS view. Yeah. Well, and the Palestine is sort of like the, um, the cause celeb of the, of the third world, third positionism, where it was mm -hmm. this, uh, you know, everyone wanted to model themselves after, like after the PLO, you know, they had their, they had their greatest hits. Right. And after those, uh, you know, everyone who had a couple friends like wanted to get together and form a Marxist Leninist organization, you know, and hijack an airplane or whatever. That was many such cases. Right. And uh, that that definitely the later because when he comes back, it's wild what happens in the 1970s when he's able to come back. They've kind of cleaned things up a lot. It's really it's it's a tangled mess to get into what was going on in the state in like the 60s suffice to say as i mentioned earlier that basically they did everything they could in a very vindictive way to stamp out peronism i mean he pissed there were people uh and again it was mostly all the right people who were pissed off so much so there was some weird shit that happened for example uh to this day no one knows where his hands are because in the 1980s his grave was desecrated and his hands were removed uh, and not only him, but Eva Perone, uh, she she was buried first. Like her body has been like all over the world because when he was in exile in Italy, they moved her body out there because of, well, of what happened, which is uh, after she had been buried, like this is like, still in the 1950s. They found, like, looking uh, her sister and others, they were looking at her at her body after she was buried, and they found that, um, well, there were blows to the temple. Uh, her neck was partially severed. Her finger was cut off. Her kneecaps were fractured. Her chest was slashed. Soles of her feet were covered in tar. I mean, her body was mutilated. And so 
there were some people with some very deep hatred. Um, and this is, I guess, the whole thing is a complex because you're dealing with Latin American politics at the same time that there's some very significant things happening in, in the world politics, you know, with the beginning of the Cold War, um, the defeat of Germany, etc. It's a wild time. And uh, you're having to deal with whatever's going on internally. I mean, you have to deal with your own oligarchs, the people with who are trying to sell your country out or happy with the the take that they already get. Um, now you also have to deal with the ambitions of foreign oligarchs trying to expand the U.S. empire into Latin America. You know, this was a it was really impressive what he was able to accomplish and the fact that he survived. I mean, there were many assassination attempts, especially when he's in exile. There were many attempts at his life. So anyways, when he returns in 1970s, uh, there's this like he's coming to fly into the country. His first return He's going to do a speech. And there's this like shootout that takes place between ostensibly left wing and right wing uh, Peronists. And because at this time there was this organization that was, uh, you know, claiming to be Peronist. that was involved in a lot of assassinations and just general like very 70s Latin American <laughs> Marxist terrorism, you know. Uh, and who knows what was really behind this, who was funding this. I mean, it was, I mean, part of it's just the general mel- mental illness of, of this type. But also there's probably some serious money changing hands. I mean, the guy who took power after Perón in the 1950s, uh, he they they launched there was an attempted counter coup they, in the next year and all the people who participated in the counter coup military people etc uh, were executed but then the man who was in charge of the government was then later himself executed by one of these like you know trotskyite splinter groups a lot of that's going on but anyways you had the shootout that took place where he was supposed to be giving a speech so you had to have the plane diverted and everything and these were both ostensibly Peronists, right? And so I think at that point, by the 1970s, it really didn't mean anything. I mean, the current president of Argentina is a nominal Peronist, right? Uh, Kirchner. And you've had like, and she's more of the like left-wing Peronist, and you've had the more right-wing Peronist, but they're right-wing in the almost more American, like Milton Friedman kind of sense. So I think without the man like in charge of the ship, the ideology just it was it was left up for the wolves. And that's the thing. Ideology is a tool, right? At the end of the day, that's what it is. It's a tool. It's a way to to organize people and to unite around a common purpose and to unite towards concerted action, et cetera. It's ultimately what it is. And so if it falls in if the tool falls out of the hands of someone who can use it proficiently and who has the right intentions and you know the right spirit uh, it's just going to be bastardized and perverted and made something that Americans now earnestly trying to understand can't really make heads or tails of well when you I'm trying to think back to some of my courses in school and on econ and you know peronism was ever really brought up and it was only really ever brought up i think once or twice in the context of international business and you know how you could 
who wanted to do business in some place like Argentina. Uh, you know, I remember I had a professor who, you know, had said to me, um, you don't really want to do business in Argentina because it's all Peronistas down there. And that everyone of any kind of significant power, whether they're sort of a bureaucrat or they're just some sort of shady power broker, you know, with some position or no position, uh, everyone uh, has some kind of longing for the Peron days. And I don't know how truthful he was being, but it does seem interesting that Argentina does keep trying to at least snap back to the Peronism. And there's this cycle they go through. And the what cycle does that even is mean from a international businessman's perspective that they're all Peronists, like they don't trust outsiders or they don't like Americans well, that they're, or they're just a bunch well, of kooks uh, or what what does that mean even? I think it was in the, the context of foreign capital. Argentina is I mean, they've been sued in courts that, that like the sovereign entity of Argentina has lost court cases over this sort of stuff to hedge funds and so forth. But generally when you put your money into Argentina, there's an implicit risk that you will not be getting it out and yeah. that they will renege on a deal. Default and risk. Yeah, they, they default on every fucking loan you give them. And, you know, I think that they, they snap back reflexively. There's this, as I was saying, there's a snapback process and it's a cycle where they will go for some extended period of time and they'll do what they're told. They'll do what the IMF tells them. They've been doing this dance with the IMF for 60 years now where they'll do what they're told and they'll institute the reforms. They'll undergo the stabilization program and it'll all go smoothly for a year or two and then they'll have a currency crisis and then it'll all go smoothly for a couple of years and then we have a tax crisis and then it all goes smoothly. We have a, another kind of crisis. And then we have a government spending crisis. And every couple years in this cycle, they snap back to this Peronist mindset. And it's not always directly a Peronist that they end up going for in the polls. Could be someone who's just sort of invoking it. Could be someone who is. Well, that's kind of. Trying to trying to use those. They're all just doing that. That, Yes. Or or you have someone who is actually trying to resuscitate pieces of Peronism. Um, You know, Kirchner and others who have have done this more recently in the last 10 years and so. And that that seems to be this process Argentines go through where they uh, I think that they're still trying to figure out what exactly their place in the world is and what exactly they're supposed to do. And Argentina is not, it's complex. I mean, there are several parts of Argentina that are fabulously wealthy. And there are a lot of aspects of life in Argentina that you would consider high or good standard of living. I mean, it's certainly parts of it comparable with Southern Europe. So it's not necessarily that bad. I think that the wider issue with Argentina is that they keep failing to really come up with sort of a, a, a true national economic policy or like a true national uh, economic vision. Here's what we're going to kind of specialize in. Here's going to be the mix of industries. Here's what we really want to subsidize. Here's what we don't want to subsidize anymore. Uh, and instead of like looking critically at the resources they have, 
I think that they have really wound themselves into this pickle where they now owe tons of money to lots of different interests and not able to pay it back adequately. And in order to do what they really want to do, which is, I think, uh, completely retool their economy, do a lot of capital investment, they would need to acquire both, they would need to grow their own money effectively they would need to grow their own wealth to reinvest and they can't do that because they're paying interest on a hundred different loans and they would need foreign capital which they are ideologically opposed to half the time so they're sort of in this terrible spot now where they're going back to peronism and then they'll move away from it and they'll go back to the imf and then they'll move away from it and they'll go back to peronism and it oscillates with differing intensity Maybe one day Argentina will kind of figure out what exactly they want to do. But I think that until then, they'll be kind of living in the shadow of Juan Perón. Yeah, uh, but if they figure out what they would like to do and find a way to break away from the IMF and their, you know, their creditors, well, they might just have a, you know, uh, an unexpected human rights democracy uh, a moment. They might have a heated democracy moment. Well, that seems to be like the the problem with trying to do anything substantive. So you see this with Hungary more and more recently. Um, I'm convinced Hungary will be on the receiving end of a coup of some kind or direct action in like the next 10 years. And the Hungarian impetus seems to be pretty simple. We will take money from anyone. We will take development from just about anyone. And we're going to institute a series of fertility policies. We're going to institute a series of pronatalist policies. We're going to do a lot of domestic reinvestment. We're going to focus on industrialization. We're going to close off the immigrant flow. We're going to raise real wages. We're going to improve the standard of living in in the rural regions. That's the like you know that's the current plan in Hungary, and that's sort of the widely agreed upon plan. Like the most of the political scene in Hungary is on board with that and is carrying that out. Now you see quite frequently more and more this talk of Hungary. Hungary is an illiberal democracy. Hungary is an autarky, uh, is an autocratic state. Uh, Hungary is, is is an oppressive state. Uh, Hungary is a racist country, and they're ramping up the pressure, and they're ramping up the impetus for this inevitable strike on a country that has tried, I think, to divorce itself from this myth of um, endless growth, endless immigration, no investment in your home industry utilize the, the the global geography of production and just become kind of a cog in the machine. Uh, and so if Argentina ever tries to follow that path, pay off its debts, uh, remain fiscally smart and try and retain your domestic industry at the same time, then I'm sure the pressure will mount and it'll start small. It'll start with, uh, we need to talk, you know, you'll see some article, we need to talk about Argentina's inherent white supremacy, because like 80% of the population is white. We're going to need to talk about 
how Argentina has engaged in this kind of behavior, this kind of anti-Semitic behavior, this, 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 and it'll just go on and on and on. So you're right. Well, it'll if, you be ever, like- if you ever, if you ever follow this path where you try to put yourself on a path to domestic success and to divorce yourself from being reliant on the global network, so to speak, you will be slowly pressured and it'll mostly be on the social front. So I guarantee you that all the the goofy stuff with the pro-abortion policies, which are just now coming into effect in Argentina, those will be ramped up because that is a form of warfare against you maintaining like a, a coherent sovereign political economy. I mean, you'll see them saying things like, <clears throat> by its brutal use of force and terrorist methods to strike down all opposition from the Argentine read Hungarian people, the military regime has made a mockery of its pledge to the United Nations to reaffirm faith in human rights and the dignity and worth of the human person. I quoted that earlier, but I just, I, I'm quoting it a second time because it, it just, again, it's the, it's the same copy pasta for nearly. No, you, you just do a control R and replace the country or person <laughs> yeah. in it's question the with the target you have at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, it's you, de- democratic when it serves Jewish interests, and it's authoritarian, uh, anti-democratic tyranny when it's not in the service of Jewish interests, no matter how popular it is. And I and I I was thinking about that too. You know, was Perón cynical and just and maybe not cynical, but just pragmatic? Because he knew who he appealed to, and so he structured policies that appealed to them. Like he, you know, instituted the first minimum wage, guaranteed vacation, sick pay, right to strike, all that sort of stuff. No, I think, uh, or, okay. or or did he genuinely believe in yes. you know the workers' revolution? Yes, and yes, um, yes to both. Because on the one hand, like he's this is politics, man. You know, you gotta. Right. It works a certain way. And so, yes, on the one hand, he knew that this could be a winning coalition, but it also has to do with the atmosphere that he came from, where it wasn't as, um, you know, in the, in America, for example, you wouldn't see something like that. You wouldn't see something that like an element of the military that would otherwise be called like a fascist you know, authoritarian military faction that's uh, supporting labor unionization. That's just foreign because in America, the right wing had this very bourgeois elitist attitude. And uh, he did not, and others in the in the military cadre did not have that attitude as well. Uh, his attitude was that in order to make a, you know, a modern Argentine state, what you needed was a organic unity of uh, of the people you know a, a corporatist state and i think that his goals for it were very ambitious but not utopian he didn't have some utopian vision of a new man but he wanted a return to sort to the classical ethos where the individual and the worker are defined by their participation in a larger community in a larger social organism that when functioning, when all the parts are functioning in harmony, then it can be freed to pursue higher forms. That is the spiritual development of the people. 
Staring 